Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends and Happy New Year! After a few weeks off at the end of last year, we are back on our normal scheduling. In today's episode, we talk to Mark Hebert, design anthropologist, director of the Innovation Office at the City and County of San Francisco, and fellow of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship, researching innovative policies in New Zealand. Today's episode took a slightly different turn from um, how we usually um, uh, run it, meaning uh, Mark actually created the space for, for me, Corina, to share some of my stories and experiences. Um, at the center of this dialogue is actually New Zealand, a place where I had begun practicing applied anthropologists several years ago and actually started this podcast and where Mark at the time of the recording was headed to start his research project as a fellow of the Edmund Hillary Fellowship. So um, we will be talking quite a lot about New Zealand. What makes New Zealand a unique space to practice applied anthropology? Um, how has Mark come across the intersection in his work between policy, tech and design and centered his career around it? And what further discoveries is he expecting with in this intersection. Mark is also asking how to create how can we create a space for a feedback loop within the collective global community and he actually temporarily transforms our podcast into such a space by asking questions himself. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, uh, welcome back today again on The Human Show. We are here with Mark Ebert, anthropologist working in government, right Mark? Hi. Hi, how are you? <laughs> I'm actually really good. I've had a really shitty week to be honest. <laughs> what happened? What happened? Yeah, well, it, it's been kind of like a workshop marathon. I've been... Uh, I've, I've done like four workshops the whole week, um, but like a fully full days ones uh, that really required a lot of my attention and uh, capacity to host. And next to those workshops, a lot of meetings where I had to speak. So I, I'm kind of, I, I, um, I was telling my colleagues at work today because today was the last workshop. I was like, I'm a little bit workshopped out. <laughs> But um, just like always, coming on this podcast and, and, and talking uh, does not feel like that at all. So I'm really happy to, uh, to be with you today. Likewise. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. So uh, just like we, we normally start, you know, tell me a little bit about your, um, about your trajectory with anthropology so far. The, the anthropology origin story. I'm a big yeah. comic dork, so I always yeah, think yeah, about yeah. origin stories. Me too. What, sure. what, what's um, your origin story? And do you, do you also have like a, like a hero journey story? Uh, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll try to make it exciting <laughs> along the way for the listeners. Okay. So, um, yeah, I think like other, other people that you've, you've interviewed, they, they go back to their undergraduate days. And, and at that time, I was, um, you know, I felt... Uh, standard majors kind of constrained me. So I had an amazing uh, uh, professor and she, she took me aside one day and she said, you know, you don't, have to, you don't have to major in these typical things. You can create your own major. The university doesn't really popularize this, but, you know, you have to keep a higher GPA, you have to write an undergraduate thesis, you have to tell them every course you want to take for the rest of your time here. But if they approve, you get to do what you want to do. And I thought, wow, yeah. fantastic, right? Mm-hmm. So I planned these courses, and they were a mix of economics and Middle East studies, and political science. 
And I took one or two anthropology courses along the way. And I always found it vexing. I, you know, the way the questions that, that these anthro uh, undergraduates, my peers would ask and the professors would ask, they, they were forcing me out of my, my binary black and white view of the world, highly quantitative data mm. uh, driven. You know, they would ask questions like, well, who actually created the data? And, you know, like maybe like citing Paulo Freire and in whose interest do we have these data? And I was like, why, why are you asking these questions? Um, so I wasn't, I don't think, ready for anthropology at that point in time where, where I was at. But I was fascinated by what they were, how they were approaching the world. So that was kind of like undergraduate, undergraduate days. And then I go on to uh, Washington, D.C. I studied um, international economic policy, doing international development work there um, for our Ministry of Agriculture. We call it the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Um, it, I was working with foreign delegations who were coming to the U.S. who wanted to know more about our agricultural systems and business and universities and research. And there was something missing, though, you know, in, in this in this day-to-day life. And I was sharing this with a friend, and I said, you know, I, I wonder if I should study anthropology. I mean, get a PhD in anthropology. And she's like, she studied poetry as an undergraduate, and she wanted to do international development work. Mm-hmm. So I said, how did you transition from poetry to, like, working for USAID or the Department of State. Yeah. And she said, oh, you know, I just, I like audited a course and it, I found it fascinating. And I took more and more and here I am. So I said, okay, why don't I do that? So I took, a, I audited a um, um, graduate course in anthropology of, of education. And I walk into the room and there are, I don't know, let's say seven people, professor arranges in a circle. He has his laptop open, he's typing. You can see what he's typing on the screen. And he essentially said, this is a space for you to engage with what we're reading. And I don't want you to get bogged down with trying to take notes. I want you to engage with each other. And then I will, you know, I will interject from time to time to ask questions. And this just blew my mind. I had mm. never, I've never taken a course where a physical space was created for learning in this way, where power was handed over to the, the learners and the professor situated uh, themselves as a facilitator. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So, uh, I did the geeky thing and I, I hired myself as a consultant. And what I mean by that is I said, okay, if somebody paid me to, or hired me to say, Mark, I'm interested in getting an applied anthropology, uh, PhD, tell me everything I need to know, where I need to go, how much it's going to cost. Um, you know, pros and cons, everything. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And I interviewed anthropology professors, graduate students around the country, around the U.S. and in other countries, um, asking them questions about their programs and regrets and what I needed to know. Um, and then I applied for um, several, um, only, I think, exclusively applied programs, uh, looking initially at agricultural anthropology. Mm-hmm. Um, I was interested in doing international development work at the time. And um, as this was going on with my job, I was able to co-create a role for myself in Costa Rica, an agricultural institute. And I got to you know, think about more about anthropology and international development context. And I was out there for uh, a while, got into these programs. And um, out, of, out of all the programs, the University of South Florida, uh, where I'm from, they were the first in the U.S. to start an applied graduate program. I really enjoyed the professors there, uh, the students there, and of course, being, being close to my family was wonderful. 
So um, the summer before I started, I was going to do agricultural anthropology back in Costa Rica. The summer before I started, they, um, a friend of mine who was really big into tech started mm-hmm. talking to me about what his work was. And I was fascinated. And I knew that I could never get my head around the, the speed with which technology was changing. But mm-hmm. I said to myself, if there's anything that's going to shape the human condition in my lifetime, it's going to be technology. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I started this program and I essentially did, the, did, a, did a switcheroo on everybody. I said, well, agriculture is really cool and I still like it, but I think I want to focus on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, a professor early on, she gave us an opportunity in a course to either do volunteer work or to kind of write a research paper. And I said, no, no, I want to do the ethnographic stuff. So um, I found um, uh, an organization uh, that helps underrepresented uh, populations in tech fields to kind of think about and explore technology and, and science. Mm-hmm. So I would go once a week, and, and these youth were amazing with social media, but they struggled to type or how to use a spreadsheet. So that, was, that would be like my role in helping them with that. And on the door to this, this small little nonprofit, um, they had like maybe, let's say, seven or eight public computers that people would come and use. Um, it said Access Florida. And I said, what's Access Florida? And they said, oh, if you need to apply for food or medical assistance, you have to go online. And I said, wait, wait, are you telling me the most vulnerable in our society have to use the internet to apply for like life-sustaining services? And they're like, oh yeah, they've closed all the other locations. Wow. And, then they, and then they asked us, these community organizations, to, to do it for free for them, which, which we do because we know the need is so high. Mm-hmm. So the idea of an unfunded mandate and, and, and how this was used as part of social so services and social policy mm-hmm. came about. So I said, okay, this is a dissertation waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. But I spent the next several years uh, researching how people experience the design of an online government program uh, in public libraries and community organizations. Wow, that's pretty cool. Are you still doing that? No, no. I was uh, lucky to, to finish up with that, 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 um, that PhD. And when I was writing, I, I was geeking out on a, on a TED Talk. And mm-hmm. I saw the founder of Code for America mm-hmm. share her, uh, her journey and her path in creating this organization. And they were, at the time, this was in 2012, they were accepting applications for the 2013 cohort. So um, on a whim, I, I applied. I didn't think I was going to get in. The whole, the whole process was, was automated. I didn't get to speak to anybody, not even like the acceptance letter. They had like oh. video recording the interview. <laughs> you know, so I was like, is this a real thing? Yeah. Um, so finally, I called someone on the phone. I said, thank you for accepting me. Yeah. I just want to make sure you guys are legit. Uh-huh. I'm like, oh, yeah, Mark, we're excited to have you. So, um, so 2013 started and... In the first couple of weeks of, of this experience, I said, oh, wow, this is where I want my career to continue to unfold at the intersection of policy, tech, um, and design. And mm-hmm. I, I was on a great product development team. I was the lead UX researcher. Mm-hmm. And we built a, um, a text message notification system for the Human Services Agency of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And the Human Services Agency is composed of two departments and an office, one department um, provides uh, social services that uh, obviously many Americans understand uh, as a welfare agency. So people looking for unemployment assistance, food assistance, medical assistance, child protective services. So that's one department. The other department advocates for the rights and dignity of people who are aging or those who have disabilities as well as veterans. And then the third is an office and the office 
uh, champions the, the field of childcare and, and provides subsidies to people in need of subsidized um, childcare. So we, we built this text messaging system to provide an additional layer of communication on top of the confusing letters that mm -hmm. clients get. Yeah. And near the end of this fellowship year, I kind of pitched an idea of creating an internal service and systems design unit in this agency. And, you know, they said, you know, Mark, we like what you do. Nothing like this exists in the country that we know of. Um, but we see the value in this. Let's try it out for a year. If it, <laughs> if it works, great. If it doesn't, we go our separate ways. And I was like, let's do it. So hmm. that was back in 2014. Yeah. And you're still doing that, right? Yes, yeah, we've, we've, grown, we've grown the team and still doing that. So um, yeah, actually, you know, that's how I uh, I came across your profile from the amazing uh, Google um, Google thread now of um, of researchers, and somebody um, I think he he or she I don't remember posted a question around uh, anthropology and um, policy or government, and you gave this amazingly long, like very thought out response, um, referring back to your work uh, in this agency, and I was like, wow, that's that's pretty awesome um we need to get mark to speak to his experience on the podcast <laughs> so uh what's next mark what, what what's happening with you in the next uh, months years well this is where i would like to learn uh more from you and i'm sure your mm -hmm. listeners are curious to hear more from from karina so there is a really fascinating fellowship uh in new zealand it's mm -hmm. called edmund hillary fellowship uh, your listeners can just do ehf.org. Yeah. It's, it's oriented towards people who are um, tech entrepreneurs and tech investors. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm really neither. But I noticed that they have um, some sort of un, unexplicit category for, I would, I would say, the, the misfits, the, the poets, mm -hmm. the philosophers, yeah. the, the others. Yeah. So I thought, why not? I'll, I'll apply. And um, really, really, really surprised that I was accepted into the cohort. And um, the kind of discussion that we had throughout the application process was to say, you know, New Zealand offers opportunities in, in many, many ways. One mm -hmm. is that two degrees of separation, which yeah. is both, you know, could be a blessing and a curse, but mm -hmm. it allows, as you mentioned earlier before we started recording, it allows for experimentation to occur and mm -hmm. in, a, in a way, and even in a national way or a citywide way, that is, that's just different. People are like, yeah, why not? Let's, let's do this. Mm -hmm. So there's that aspect. The other aspect is that the role and influence and importance um, of, of Maori, Maori culture, um, I think is very valuable. And, and cultivating this and learning more about this to reimagine what does it mean to bring together design policy and tech. You know, I, I think the uh, ascendancy of climate change mm -hmm. and both the economic opportunity, like in the U.S., the idea of a Green New Deal, but also the very real importance of how we have to care for our environment. Indigenous cultures um, have been doing this as part of their practice since the beginning for, for across the world. Um, not all of them. I don't want to blanket all of them. But yeah. it's a very common practice in which we think about the, 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 the sacredness of the environment and how we go about our lives vis-a-vis -vis the nature and yeah. the land and the water and the sky and the sea. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm interested in, in, in thinking about this, this um, as anthropologists have talked about, this indigenous knowledge system mm -hmm. and what, what does it mean to, 
to apply this and to understand this about how we design better public services and systems and experiences. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> well, I think you, you've touched on two of my favorite things about New Zealand. Um, I, I, one of them being um, the um, this this experimentation uh, aspect that um, my, in comparison to any other country that I lived in, I found New Zealand to be a space where, where people just just do, you know? And at the beginning, it was a little bit frustrating because they looked at me as, a, as an anthropologist that asked questions that is, uh, thinks maybe that even has a, a, a little bit of more academic way of looking into things. Um, like, okay, uh, but just do. Uh, and and it, it is interesting, like from, from the moment I started doing projects and, and I started doing them with a very strong like research lens, not the design part at that time was not that present in my mind. Um, I was very frustrated with this push to do, you know, to experiment, to see, to touch and feel and, 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 and think at the same time as doing. Um, so that's how this podcast actually started, uh, not with me wanting to study what it means to, to host, to, to ask questions to uh, in this form of media. But then, no, no, this media agency, just, this media, just, just, uh, media partner just came to us and said, no, you can do it, just do it. Just start talking to people and see where it takes you. <laughs> so um, that, that part of, of, of how I've experienced the culture of New Zealand, um, I really like. It really, I, one of the challenges that I have as an anthropologist and actually what pushed me to experiment more with design in, in, in the last years has been this kind of thing which I feel is almost like a separation between theory and practice. Um, so, and I, and I find like in this, in this uh, how was, is it that you can look at something and do something with it at the same time and just continuously iterate on that? And how can this be? How can that happen? I've had a few very complex projects where I've been asked to enter as an expert anthropologist, me and my team. And we've experienced that frustration at the end of the research where you, you know, give them a story of what you found. But then there's no doing, you know, you don't do anything with it. They, you don't know what they do with it. So out of that kind of frustration of the position of the expert that you feel doesn't have an impact the way you've imagined it, comes also this interest, uh, more detailed towards design. And the second thing about New Zealand, which I found fascinating was um, the fact that from the way I've experienced the Maori community is not an indigenous community at all. It's actually part of the culture of New Zealand and it's part of its living and breathing fabric. So um, I've been working with Maori entrepreneurs. Um, I, I, I was a mentor in Maori accelerator, tech accelerator startups that are Maori. <laughs> uh, and of course, the, the, they do not have the same um, position in society as the non-Maori. And that is a constant thing that they fight against. But they have a, an extremely powerful presence and... Uh, they're very much integrated into the fabric of what New Zealand is, which which I found very different from other countries that I've lived and what they refer to as their indigenous community. So just to give you a small example, in this Maori tech accelerator that I was part of, they start looking at the problem that generates the need for a technology in the same way as an anthropologist looks uh, at the world, like what you were mentioning at the beginning of your introduction, like why is this in the world? How is it contributing to future generations? Um, how is it 
this technology solution? How is it uh, inclusive towards all living beings, you know, humans, non-humans, the environment, you know? So they ask this extremely profound, systemic, deep questions. And there are, I have experienced that accelerators being incredibly um, focused on impact. And they do that in a way of engaging with each other that is also very profound. You know, like the, the first question that I got when I started mentoring there was, what is the story of your grandfather? You know, tell me about your grandfather. How was he like? So, you know, they, this, and looking you very profoundly in the eyes and, and, and hosting a space for a conversation of introduction that was one hour and a half, if you can imagine that. <laughs> So, yeah. yeah, it was a very long uh, answer to your question, but um, these are like kind of like my first two thoughts on what I think makes New Zealand special from that perspective. Well, no, I want to I I continue the, this, this, this geek out on, um, yeah. on, on all things New Zealand. Because, um, so back in 2017, um, the um, Service Innovation Lab in New Zealand's Department of Internal Affairs started blogging. Mm -hmm. And they, they were creating a space across ministries where people could come and work on different digital products. Mm -hmm. I found it absolutely fascinating and I reached out to them and they were very friendly and they said, Mark, we, we plan on coming through San Francisco on our way to London. Mm -hmm. um, and I said, well, would you mind presenting your, your work? They were working on um, actually a, a cool app called Smart Start and it's for new parents. Mm -hmm. So that's, that was wonderful. Yeah. And then somebody was working on something called Real ID, which was you know, an online kind of verification. Mm -hmm. So please, can you, can you speak? And they said, great. So they come and they introduce themselves with a, with a pepeha, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Mm -hmm. And um, for, for your listeners, and, 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 and forgive me for, for, for anybody in, from New Zealand, in, in which I'm, if I'm doing, not doing justice, is when somebody introduces themselves and the introduction kind of really includes the land and the mountain mm -hmm. and the yeah. river and yeah. the family. Mm -hmm. and, and the last thing that is mentioned is one's name. Yes. So, mm -hmm. so you get context for who the individual is in a holistic way that includes, right? That includes the yeah. nature. Yeah. And not only that, uh, just excuse me for interrupting you. We have an episode on the podcast with Manuka Henare, who's a Maori anthropologist. And he talks, yeah, and he talks about this concept yeah. of time, you know, yes. that, that for, that for, for, for them, you as an individual are not you in the present right now, but you hold in this moment, um, the history of your heritage line and your land and the potential potential for the future of your line and your land and you hold not only them present in who you are in this moment but also the potentiality for what can become and the duty towards what was so he speaks about this you know kind of like concept of time and heritage and future and mixed with identity in a way that I found yeah it, it kind of triggered when you were speaking that it reminded me of his of his talk that interview um, mm -hmm. is one of my favorite podcasts among yours and i hope that there are more maori yeah. voices on the podcast moving forward mm. me too <laughs> yeah it would be great to actually have one in tereo and then we can read the read the transcript but anyway um 
So what you had what you had mentioned that he had said reminds actually on the building uh, where I work, mm-hmm. and it's a it's a Margaret Mead quote. So I have to say, when I started working there, I was really surprised to enter this this human services agency with a Margaret Mead quote. But it was something along the lines of. Um, the task of the individual is also that of all of humanity to care for the living, um, to remember those who have come before, and to prepare for those who are not yet born. Mm-hmm. And it, that, that's, that speaks to uh, the fluidity of time in which past, present, future. And what, 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 the, what does that mean when we engage in conversation? And how do we go about thinking of problems that we are tasked with when people come to us, at least in, at least in my you know, professional experience, many people come to us with, with problems that they're asking to, to help. But what the, the, the challenge that I have often found, at least in, in, a, in a public sector context, is that we often conflate what we are, our objective is that we want to achieve with how we want to go about achieving that objective with how we're going to measure success about whether or not we've achieved that objective. And I, and I think with a, um, a more holistic sort of framing on this, we can help clarify the problem space for individuals, but we can also introduce other factors like equity, like trauma, like the mm-hmm. historical context in which these problems are unfolding that kind of spread out before our quote-unquote clients or stakeholders to enable them to say, ah, okay, so maybe, maybe while I, I view this problem in a discrete sort of way, there are these other factors that various perspectives that are not in the room provide in this conversation so that we can create a, in a more systemic sort of change, not just an isolated one. Yeah, yeah. I, and I think, I think a, a, an ecosystem somehow like the ecosystem of a small island like New Zealand makes this maybe more visible uh, maybe maybe triggers more like i've met i've met a lot of people that just because of this two degrees of separations they they just know each other you know they they know each other they have feelings for each other negative positive uh, but but you're not just a face in a crowd you know and, and this kind of depersonalization that that somehow happens in big spaces big cities and some of them even accelerated by technology um I think I didn't feel that they're that strong, um, but but they do have um, you know it's also not a utopia. They do have I think I think many problems of of, of engaging. In the last two or three episodes on the podcast, I've been very really interested to uh, explore more the law part of it um, of technology and 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 what human citizens are. And I, I've discovered in interviewing um, if interviewing our participants. Uh, on the podcast that I, I, to my shame, I know very little of that. You know, I, I don't even have the words to express how I think of my citizenship in the space that I inhabit, my my civism. What is civism for me? You know, I I was invited to, in my country of origin, Romania, to, to have a, a, a talk about applied anthropology. And in Romania right now, governance and civism is a very hot topic as, as they are trying, we're still trying to transition to democracy. Um, and it's interesting because in the last 30 years, democracy has come to Romania as a set of tools and processes of how to do democracy, but it hasn't really landed in our way of doing. 
and, and what does it mean for us and do we really feel it to act in that way so I started thinking okay well like uh, what do I feel I like, like what as a simple citizen right not, not as an anthropologist as a citizen like how do I engage with my environment what drives me to vote what drives me to have an opinion on a topic or another and I realized that there's very little uh, that I that I that I have around me or of tools that kind of um, I can access to engage so well that's that's interesting because what what you the way the framing of bringing democracy to Romania sounds very similar to when people say we want to bring innovation to government yeah we want to, we want to bring design to government or lean process improvement behavioral insights futures work this this sort of stuff because in in my mind, there are already people who have been doing this work. Mm. There are already people who have been practicing this. Whether or not there have been formal structures in place mm-hmm. that enabled this way of thinking and doing is one thing. I, I appreciate what you're saying about it, it's like democracy are these tools. You need, you need these tools. Yeah. And people say the same thing about trying to apply design and anthropology and, and, and other sort of things. We need these tools. And, and, and the tools are a, a part of it. But it's, mm-hmm. it's part of a kind of communal ecosystem approach to say, well, how, how are we collectively going about this work? And, and, and is it acceptable for us to muddle through this? Are there kind of cultural implications of, of failing or getting things wrong? Mm-hmm. No, no, but that's exactly what I meant. I meant that the tools are not enough. You, you, you need to somehow activate. The civism is, is about activating this, this, this feeling of community and, and the fact that we do something we need to do something and then the tool is just a way for that to take shape sorry for my poorly phrased uh, answer but w- what I meant is that you know Romania for a long time has been under communism and, and that sense of community and, and, and the way you trust each other the way you feel like you are with each other it's almost the opposition of what is happening in New Zealand or what happens in Maori community because the type of communism that, that had been in Romania at least in the last 30 years before those 30 years was one that made you distrust the other, was was one that was meant to separate, not to bring together. So then you have this kind of collective almost trauma because of the horrors of communism. Um, My own father was was beaten and um, um, almost tortured for speaking against the regime, and I remember that as a young girl. So... um, yeah, it's. I think. I think these kind of systems that kind of tear at the fabric of what it means to be part of a community, they prevent um, us from, you know, kind of sensing the other, from coming together, and from then accessing tools um, that are technology or not, to to solve our problems. You know. Yes. Yes, it, it, it's almost reminiscent of these kind of truth and reconciliation. Yeah. Uh, Again, coming back to New Zealand and going there and trying to um, connect policy and tech and government, uh, I, I think I think that is something that that really will make an interesting combination happen because, you know, this, this sense of connectivity in the community, the civism, I, I felt there it's 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 um, it's quite strong and it's quite something special. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping to be out there in October and November of this year doing um, rapid ethnographic research. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying to trying to line up different interviews and opportunities where I can do some volunteer work or sit in and listen and yeah, and try to see how does what does this space look like to to diverse actors and what are 
what are their needs as they articulate it? Because I've got various ideas mm-hmm. that I have shared out with some folks that I know out there yeah. um, who have given generously of their time. And, and, I, and I really appreciate their wonderful critiques of some of these ideas. So I think, right, I, I do need to do a good job of, of listening before evangelizing this stuff to see, well, what, what, are, what are the needs and how are, how, what, what are the, the local context of, yeah. this, of, this, of this interplay and this intersection? And, and what, do you, what do you imagine this to have as an effect on your work? Or on, do you have a particular objective in mind? Yeah, I think, well, I, a, a couple of different things. So I have, I've been really interested in, in this idea of a, a space at a, at, that has n- national influence, but very deep local connections to prototype policy. Um, I, I know that the work coming out of London, coming out mm-hmm. of Helsinki and Singapore, really, really exciting stuff where policymakers and at times policy administrators, you know, at, at, at a kind of department or ministry or, or local council are given the opportunity to, 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 to test out some ideas that are new before mm-hmm. scaling. Now, yeah. oftentimes in, in government, this is referred to as a, as a pilot. In my experience, a pilot is, is often viewed by the people who implement it as just the first wave of what's to come, mm-hmm. right? It's like, this is going to happen no matter what. So we want to kind of make sure that the errors and stuff are, are, are kind of worked out as much as possible. Mm-hmm. The wave two is happening. But a prototype is really, a, is really about learning. And if we learn that it's not going to happen, there's no second wave. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, no, what we thought we were going to do is not what we should be doing. I, I'm, I'm curious about whether or not the size and, 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 and the dynamics of relationships among people in New Zealand allow for, allow for the kind of prototyping of policy in this way, both for new things as well as for existing approaches. And, and within that existing sort of practice of, of government and practice of designing digital and non-digital service experiences, I, I have long... Uh, understood and, and both with the research and in my own experience, how performance metrics and evaluation mm-hmm. shapes design and implementation of public services. And this is not only within government, yeah. this is also outside of government, right? Yeah. You know, at, at, its, at its basic level, the way people understood, understand they're going to be evaluated and rewarded is going to shape their behavior. Um, and you see this happening to perverse effects Consistently, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I read uh, an article just the other day around a particular policy um, in New Zealand um, around Kiwi Build, and it was the idea to kind of stand up houses mm-hmm. and homes as fast as possible. And I forgot if it was uh, the minister who oversees this who said, you know, we were incentivizing the wrong thing. Mm-hmm. We, were, we were trying to say as many homes as possible. But were we, were we thinking about these other sort of contexts about a quality home and, and where they should be built and, and how we're fostering community and, and these other sorts of kind of characteristics. But the, but the metric that was used was how fast. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you, and you see this in many different contexts. Mm-hmm. How fast can we serve people? Um, how long does that engagement last? And, you know, in the business community, is there a conversion, right? Do they, do they purchase something? You know, in, the, in, the, in the public sector context, while there are places in government that are money making, right, like your utilities mm-hmm. or your airport, a lot of areas are, are not. And so what is, the, what is the way in which we understand success? And, and, and the day-to-day operations talk about design and performance metrics coming together to shape behavior. 
Look at perform. Look at the dashboards mm-hmm. that many, many executives and managers look at within both the public and private sector. Google Analytics is a great example of this. You have all of these sort of kind of quantitative data in front of you, and then you pick and choose and say, okay, these are the things that we're going to use yeah. to understand how well we're doing. How is that leading to an outcome for societal benefit? Yeah, yeah. And right? Those, those dashboards yeah. would encourage that. And how do you define that, you know, for you as a, as a collective? I, I remember I did, um, I did a project in, um, in New Zealand in, in a university um, that I, I started, I started um, they asked me for, for help to, um, to understand why certain types of technologies that they were trying to introduce into the classroom were not accepted by the, by the tutors and uh, by the students. And it ended up being a, um, a research about neoliberalism in academia uh, with a particular lens in in the New Zealand context because the academic space is is very fastly um, uh, transforming into a commercial space which has very uh, complicated uh, consequences for for both the the students um, that are starting to get incredibly burdened with loans um, and also for the tutors that do not control anymore the way education um, is, is uh, the way the knowledge is actually um, put forward towards the student and constructed with them. Um, so I think what, what I found challenging in that context uh, is that on one side I really liked what they are trying to do in terms of environment and, and all of those progressive measures of how do you incorporate the environment more uh, but on the other hand um, you know this pervasion of, of neoliberalism into public service and particularly with respect to, to the product which is education I, I really found it quite troubling not very different from what is happening in other countries too, but I wouldn't have expected it there. <laughs> so what do you think we can do about it? It, it was to start thinking, you know, like what is the role of, uh, of a university in a, in a collective? What exactly is that space? Oh, now this reminds me of another project also in New Zealand that I did. It was not in, in government, but it actually links to, to this. It was in, um, it was for, um, for a startup that was not a startup anymore that was that wanted to disrupt the banking system via technology. So this this company uh, called um, Harmony, uh, they've built this product that was supposed to um, enable the community to borrow and lend money to each other. So they wanted to go back to the original purpose of why we have a bank in a community, which is to safeguard the surplus um, of money that exists at one point and to kind of make sure that it gets redistributed as it's needed. So they, they, the, the principle on which they built their technological product originally was to do that. They said, oh, well, you know, the bank in today's society is not what it used to be. It has lost its, its use for the whole collective. It only serves the interest of itself um, and maybe a few entities. It doesn't serve the community anymore. Therefore, it's ripe for disruption. So and we're going to build this technological product that will, um, you know, the role of a bank in society, we're going to take it over. What happened, which is very interesting to see, is that at the beginning they had a lot of success. They had a lot of traction, but also they needed a lot of money to build a good technological product. And the first 
entities that were interested in funding them was the banking sector. Uh, they got money uh, from banks uh, and slowly their product more and more started to resemble a traditional banking product. The, 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 right. po the, policies, of, mm. of the policies of how you lend, to whom you lend, how do you qualify somebody to accept a loan? Because one of the things that they were criticizing at the beginning was the fact that a, a banking product is incredibly non-inclusive. If you, if, you if you have a bad credit score or if you have something that the bank has deemed uh, not good, you are not allowed in any way. You are not allowed to ask for money. And um, when we entered into the process of this, of this bank, the digital bank, uh, they also had quite a large group of people that were trying to access their products that because of the new policies that they had built um, were no longer um, inclusive. They no longer had, had um, the opportunity to get a small loan. And at the beginning, it was not like that. At the beginning, you know, um, the threshold was very low and it enabled a lot of people that from a reason or another were, uh, were, were in a, a situation that was not okay to turn their life around. They didn't need much. But the thing is that even when you don't need much and you go to a bank, you still don't get it, you know? So we, we gathered all of the stories. We, we came back and we presented to them and, and that was a message, you know, like... Um, you started you started in a space of um, of a conceptualization of what this means for a collective and that was very powerful in itself um, and as you grew you kind of moved more towards the traditional space um, and and that is something that is not necessarily uh, helping you anymore so coming back to the education i think I think this is what needs to happen. I think we need to kind of start again thinking, okay, why do we have an education system inside a collective? What purpose is it supposed to serve? It needs to be what type of education we want to produce and what type of service do we want to give to uh, the people entering it, you know? I'm not sure if that answered your question, but, but that, that, that's my point of view. No, oh, thank you, thank you for sharing. Like I said, I'm typically on these podcasts, yeah. there, are, there are other people who are who are doing the talk, and I was like, "What's what's Karina's story? What, yeah. what, are, what are her views on this stuff?" Because I think I think they're they're rich and meaningful. Um, so, combining a little bit about what you what you have shared and and what I mentioned earlier on performance metrics, there was um, a, a wonderful book that came out a couple of years ago, I think now, called "The Tyranny of Metrics," mm. and. Um, the, the professor, a professor of history, talks about how these metrics come about and and how they unfold in people's lives who mm -hmm. are who are doing who are doing the work, either receiving it or providing it, mm -hmm. um, any kind of service. Both um, it is it is public sector oriented, but not exclusively. And I think in the book he had mentioned how in the U.S. our, uh, our Ministry of Education or U.S. Department of Education came up with a performance metrics to evaluate universities. Mm -hmm. It was essentially saying, hey, this is how much a university costs. Yeah. This is how many students get a job. We're going to leave it up to you, the public, to decide whether or not you should go to this university. So, so now if we boil down to this hmm. very real and, and, and important decision about how much a university costs, and it's also important to understand how many people are getting jobs. Yeah. But what are the other sort of factors that go into the experience 
of going to the university, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. The other sort of metrics that mm-hmm. students would talk about or their families or professors or graduate assistants and, and, and others, yeah. uh, the community around a university, the businesses. Mm-hmm. What, does, what does that sort of, that is missing from a dashboard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Just to tell you a little bit the counter to that, because uh, I find it very interesting. Uh, now in my current job, uh, there is this uh, really interesting design doing university here in the Netherlands called TU Delft. Um, and TU Delft is, is extremely good at commercializing um, to a certain extent what they do, you know. So they, they are very good at making that connection between the students and the businesses. Um, and they have various contracts with many companies to get their students to experience actual work very early stage in their, um, throughout their student, let's say, career. But they are so good at it, meaning that their students, they are so good at going into companies and, and solving these design problems, uh, that the companies are actually, uh, that that actually the design space, the consulting space, is now looking at the university as a competitor, you know, <laughs> and, and saying, uh, you know, coming to the university, say, oh, 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 hold on a minute, is, you are a space of knowledge, right? You are a space of educating students, not a space of providing commercial services, <laughs> Um, you're you're kind of you're you're kind of taking our jobs from us uh, because they they are just so good at uh, at, at, at uh, and I and not just the, the so good but I think that the whole thing around design doing is that you have to do it right to get better at it mm-hmm. yeah so so it's this kind of this maybe this gray area between you know like what does it mean to just go out there in the world and practice and then go back to a mentor a professor somebody with deep knowledge that helps you right mm-hmm. so there's there's in that there's there's such a strong combination that makes those students even even though they is right maybe their first uh, real job or their first thing it makes them extremely effective in what they do you know in in the business itself that's that's excellent um yeah wherever wherever i i land next or or do next i i would love to resume teaching you know occasionally or on this on the side and in some sort of capacity because it is it is wonderful to to work with with learners and and see them take concepts that you introduce in a classroom setting and apply them. I, when I was um, at the University of South Florida, I, I taught several courses. Was really lucky to to be asked to do that, and I tried uh, um, to make service learning as much as I could in every course that I had, so that students had an opportunity. To apply these ethnographic methods yeah. to you know do deductive and inductive analysis, to think about how to present, and and to tie these things together. So, um, yeah, kudos to to TU Dell for for elevating the bar and and yeah. for these design companies to be like, okay, if this is what they're doing, what does that mean in terms of our service offerings? Or mm. you know, how how can we collaborate with the university? To be like, okay, you could you could go in house being a being a designer or design researcher, mm. or you could come through us. So, yeah. yeah. I wanted um, I wanted to ask you because um, I think a, quite a quite a good part of our audience is actually from the Pacific, New Zealand, Australia. If if you have any um, any thoughts, any questions, any uh, anything that you want to share with our um, listeners from 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 this part of the world, and I will also put your contact details in our um, show notes, uh, dear listeners, in case you want to reach out to Mark. Um, 
for when you are there in New Zealand. Thank you. Um, yeah, I, I, I am absolutely humbled by the generosity um, and, and, and the cutting edge sort of work that is happening in, in New Zealand, um, as well as Australia. We haven't talked a lot about Australia, but, um, and it's, it's going to be an absolute privilege to, to hopefully be out there in, in a couple months. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, any, any kind of overarching thing to share? I, I would love to continue to see, um, I would say, New Zealand ways of thinking and doing being exported out to other places. I don't know if there is some sort of indigenous design alliance or network, mm. but, but I would like to see even what is going on here in my own country among First Nations people, also in Canada, um, also in Mexico. I don't know. Mm. I don't know how these communities are, have been thinking about policy, design, and tech, and using their, their culture, their historical narrative to inform this practice. Mm-hmm. So I, it would be great to have that kind of global impact coming out of, out of New Zealand and then having a feedback loop. You know, I, I, I often think that, that feedback loops are part of, the, um, part of a, a process that is so often difficult to do so that when we put things out there, we can get a sense about how people are engaging with it and what, what questions do they have? What are their biggest surprises and learnings? So that we as a collective global community who want to work in this space and think that we have something to contribute, we can, we can put our ideas out there and then get feedback. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, on your own podcast, is there a space for, uh, for people to, to engage with the kind of collective knowledge that they're sharing and, and push it back to you? And an angel? Um, yeah, I don't know. How would you imagine such a space? I don't know. I, mean, I went through. I went through the the podcast. Yeah. Um, and and I and I listened to some also mm-hmm. on um, on my on my phone. And I don't yeah. know. I don't know if there was an opportunity to be like, hey, if there's something that you heard, yeah. let us know. If you want to, you know, like I'm glad you're asking people to reach out to me. I would love to hear from them and have people push back or or say, hey, what about this? Or yeah, consider yeah. So. Something, something like that that keeps the conversation going. So mm. the richness uh, and lived experience of listeners can, can push these sort of ideas forward. Yeah, well, I, I love the question. And if anybody has any thoughts around that, please, please reach out and let us know. We are, we are quite uh, active on, on social media, but of course, it's not, it's not definitely not enough. And it's not the right maybe medium for, for this question that you're asking. But it's a good question to ask. So, yeah, I don't have an answer yet. Um, with our conference episodes, we, we, we normally ask this type of questions. And, and, but we, we are, we, I think it's a, it's a good question. You know, how do we do more there? It's a good one. Thank you. I, um, I wanted to share with you a little story of culture shock that I had moving to New Zealand. Uh, Please. That was really, uh, um, yeah, it was really nice. It's cu- culture shock. It's always so surprising. I, I've lived in, in many countries and uh, sometimes it really like messes with you moving from one to another and what the culture requires of you. I, I moved to Germany from Romania and I was told I was too warm and I need to be I no, I no, I was told I was too, too messy and intense, and I need to be more structured and distant. Um, and then I moved from Germany to Brazil, and they told me, "Ooh, you're too cold. You need to, you need to be warmer and closer." <laughs> 
Um, and then I moved from Germany to the Netherlands and they told me, oh, you need to be again a bit colder. Um, <laughs> so it's, it, it's interesting moving from, from all of those cultures to another, how you kind of adapt, but then you're asked to be a little bit different. But when I, uh, when I moved from, uh, from uh, Amsterdam to Auckland, I was at the beginning of my applied anthropology journey and I was very anxious to, um, of course, start building a network as soon as possible. So before moving to New Zealand, um, I started, you know, reaching out to people via LinkedIn, via in the tech space um, to see, okay, um, can I introduce myself, tell you a little bit about myself so that I already, you know, coming into New Zealand, I will already have some uh, meetings already planned. And one of them, he was the, um, I think it was, he was the head of marketing for a really big New Zealand company called um, um, Zero, who is accounting. It's a technical, uh, it's an accounting service that is digital. Right. So, so I, um, so I set an, an appointment with him and it was right the day that I landed. So I landed on a Saturday morning and I had a meeting with him at midday in a cafe in Ponsonby, who's like the a hip neighborhood in Auckland. So I, I get off my plane. I had a list of questions. I already had researched the company and I had already kind of like a mini pitch going on, went home uh, to my new home, <laughs> shower changed and then went to this cafe and I met, meet him there. He was there with his wife and his three children having a brunch and then I kind of launched into my pitch for from the first half an hour of the conversation and, and it went so bad I I remember like as and he was like he was with the kids and with the wife and asking me so do you like avocados do you like oranges like like this really kind of <laughs> <laughs> right he was being human right? he, was, he was being human exactly and I was not um, and I did not get those cues man like for an hour that conversation was so different we were like speaking on completely different lanes and it went like that for I think the first three months of my stay in New Zealand so it took me a while to kind of calm down and um and, and kind of get into this mood of just just being and you know like the type of networking that is done there i've experienced it to be much more uh yeah the human first um and then if you like each other and i get to know you and your grandfather and the land where you've been born um we can talk about business like like yeah after a few months after a year maybe <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's going to make rapid, rapid ethnographic yeah. research a little, a little bit challenging. <laughs> so I, I've, been, I've been thinking about how to go about this in a way in which maybe, maybe the approach, yes, definitely having in the conversations, but also this is where I feel volunteer work yeah. and just showing up and listening, yeah. observing, and whatever, whatever sort of way people might be willing to, whatever, that that's taking out the trash or whatever. That's how it's, yeah. understand. Volunteer is how it started for me. So I started volunteering for a lot of NGOs and, and, and that's how it kind of started moving uh, in a very nice way. And I, I, I got a, started getting a foot a bit in the community. So it's really nice. But nice. Um, yeah, well, all the best. And um, I wish you, you have a wonderful time in New Zealand. Thank you. Yeah, and for our listeners that are from there, um, you will have all of Mark's details in the show notes. And, you know, please feel free to reach out. Um, and yeah, and then maybe also reach out to us and tell us all about it. <laughs> that sounds great. <laughs> Kia ora. Kia ora, bye. Thank you for listening, everyone. 
Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speaker's work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.